so good to see everyone here this morning. We are grateful for your presence. We do have a good number of visitors. We're grateful that you have uh, come to be with us this morning. Uh, We hope that everything we've done has been encouraging and uplifting to all of us. Uh, If you haven't been here over the last uh, several weeks, we have begun working through uh, Peter's first letter here in 1 Peter chapter 1. We've had a couple of of lessons, and we're going to continue that uh, this morning. But before we get into that, let's go to God in prayer. Lord, our God, as we open up your word, we are grateful uh, that we can look into what you have said, uh, what Peter said to these exiles, and we pray, Lord, that we would apply to our lives what we need to apply. We live in a world that is uh, getting further and further away from you, and we need uh, the messages here. We ask that what we talk about this morning will be only your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as persecutions and trials are becoming more and more prominent uh, during uh, the mid-60s A.D., Peter appropriately renamed the disciples uh, to better describe their place in this world. He does that at the very beginning of his letter here in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he describes them as elect exiles. That better describes who these Christians are as they live in a world that is persecuting them, that is trying to bring them down. Peter wants them to remember, you are elect exiles. That is a special name. That is a special Uh, identity that you have. You do not belong to this world. You belong to another world. You are chosen people. And that description is a wonderful description that needs to be imprinted on our hearts as well. We need to view ourselves as these elect exiles. No, maybe we aren't going through some of the persecutions that these Christians were going through, but We live in a world that is not our world. We belong to another one. And so we need to remember that we are elect exiles, those who belong to God. And as we come to the main body of the letter here in chapter 1 and verse 13, uh, Peter really begins describing to these Christians how the Lord's exiles really ought to live. It becomes very practical from this point on. Here's how you need to live in light of the world that you are living in. In light of your uh, description as exiles, in light of the persecution that you are going through, which in all reality, because of what Peter's going to say later in the letter, is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Here's how you need to live in the midst of all these trials. And we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago in the first, uh, in verses 3 through 12, how Peter gives them the key to enduring the trials. Because we have this living hope, because we have the salvation, because we have been born again to this living hope, now we can endure, and now he's going to tell us, here's practically how you live this out. Here's how you live because you have this living hope, and that's exactly what Uh, Peter gets to in verse 13 with that very first word, which is an important word, but because it connects what's coming to what's already been said. In verse 13 it says, therefore. Therefore, 
implies a conclusion from Peter's uh, previous verses, what he talked about with the living hope and describing what that hope looks like. And that word here can be translated as well for this reason. Because of what I have said before, this is how you can live now. And we are to consider the facts at, that he has revealed so that we can prepare our minds for action. Therefore, because of what I said before, prepare. Prepare your minds for action. The therefore, then, needs to clearly remain in our minds going through all of this. We've got to keep in our minds what Peter talked about in verses 3 through 13 that is critical to understanding why and how we can begin to prepare our minds for action and how we can set our hope on the grace that is to be revealed that he talks about there in verse 13. So what is this therefore referring to? Well, we talked about it some. God has caused us to be reborn to a living hope based on Christ's resurrection. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. We have an inheritance awaiting us that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. We have trials that, we are, going, that, that are going to result in glory and praise and honor for God. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. We have a privileged position uh, that the prophets and the angels have desired to gaze upon. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And importantly, we are living as exiles. We are strangers and foreigners in our time here on earth. Our, <coughs> excuse me, our citizenship is elsewhere. Wherever is here is short-lived. And so we, are, we should be saying to ourselves, my present state... Wherever my present is, it isn't my home, it isn't my country, and this certainly isn't where I will be living after a little while. At some point, I'm going to leave this place. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. All that we've talked about so far is all motivation. It is motivation for how we can now practically live as elect exiles to the glory of God. And these are motivations to hold our heads up. It is so easy in this world to hang our heads, and that's exactly what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to become despondent to the point that we will give up. But these motivations are here to help us hold our heads up as good soldiers engaged in the battle. And in a battle that ultimately, if we cling to God, we can't lose. Therefore, this whole section now, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 13, going through the rest of the book is really all application. It's kind of like a sermon. You've got all this build up and then you get the application. This is what, what Peter has been doing. He's built up to this point. Now he's giving us the application of what he's already said about our living hope that has been given to us. And as verse 17 states, this is the lifestyle 
that is to be lived by exile. And what Peter's going to do in these few verses is give us four primary commands, four commands, and in each he embeds the reasons or foundations for those commands. Now we need to consider that in light of these trials that these, that these Christians are presently enduring and the trials that Peter later reveals are coming. He reminds them, fiery trials, don't be surprised when they get here. What Peter is telling them, moving on from verse 13, is that they and we are not to sit back and passively wait for the tidal wave to hit us. It's so easy to do that. It's so easy to get comfortable where we are and just wait, and then eventually something bad's going to happen, and then we react to it. What Peter is saying here is, I want you to be proactive because the tidal wave is coming. Don't sit passively by and wait for it to smash you against the rocks. You start working now. You start taking action now, preparing your minds for action now. To take the passive approach to the coming trials would be to act as if we have no defense against the trials. Well, it's going to happen one way or the other, so I might as well enjoy what I've got right now and just wait for it to hit me. That isn't what Peter describes at all. No, we have a defense. We have a way to get through this, but we've got to prepare for it. We've got to embed ourselves deeply in our God and the salvation that he has given to us. I think if we didn't have a defense, Peter wouldn't have written the letter. But we do have a defense, and so Peter does write this letter, and he says, this is the lifestyle. These are the commands that you need to remember. Peter intends for us as Christians, as exiles, to take action in order to endure, and in order for the trials then to be to the glory of God. What a positive reaction that is. It's a statement of, we are not weak so that we can be battered by Satan. It is by the Lord's power that we are being guarded for salvation that is ready to be revealed. You remember in verse 5, we talked about that. It is God who is protecting our salvation. That's how valuable it is. And when you remember, we are being guarded by God. And we have to remember if we cling to God, we are not going to be defeated by this. Yes, it may take us physically, it may do things to our lives, but we are ultimately not going to be defeated by this or any trial. We're not going to go through any hardships that are impossible for us to endure or that are going to be too hard for us. We're not going to go through any trial in which we are alone. God's presence is always with us. You remember what the Hebrew writer says over in Hebrews chapter 13? I find a lot of comfort in this verse. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 6. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You back up to verse 5. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. God is with us. 
So we will not be defeated by whatever trials come our way as long as we cling to the one who won't leave us. And so the theme of this whole passage is all about the difference that salvation brings to the life of Christians. That salvation, and I think this is important, that salvation is what pushes us and motivates us forward through whatever trials, through whatever we might go through in this life. Certainly it's going to be the motivation and the propellant for these Christians that Peter is writing to. And as the result of this salvation that brings life to us, Peter is going to give these four commands or these four exhortations. In verse 13, he says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. In verse 15, he says, Be holy in all your conduct. In verse 17, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And in verse 22, Love one another earnestly from a pure Let's think about these four commands, or an introduction to these four commands. First of all, Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Uh, the older version, I think uh, John read from, from one of these versions a minute ago, and I think this kind of gives us a connection back to the Old Testament uh, says, gird up the loins of your mind. And just to get a better picture of this, you think about uh, the days in the Old Testament of the prophet Elijah when he was prophesying during the time of Ahab. Uh, you remember the story when Elijah prayed that it would rain and he warned Ahab uh, to get in his chariot and to ride home because there was a great rain that was about to hit uh, hit that area, and Ahab did so, but the scripture says there in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 46, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The idea that we see here is that when those ancient people back in the Old Testament had work to do or any physical action that was going to take a lot of physical exertion on their part, it was necessary because they wore these long robes to take those robes and gird them up around their legs so that they could actually go about the work that they were going to do. So when Elijah runs, he, he girds up the, the, his robes around him so that he could actually go about running. I imagine it would have been really hard to run in those robes if they were still all around your feet. And so this is the idea that Peter is getting at here. I want you to be unencumbered so you can go about this work. I want you to prepare yourselves. You've got work to do. You've got a lifestyle that you are to go about living to the glory of God. So if you're going to do that, you need to be working towards that goal. You need to be preparing yourselves for that. And I think what he's getting at here has to do with toughening our mental attitude our mental attitudes, and getting ourselves ready for what God has called us to do. You think about Israel on the verge of entering Canaan. God wanted them to get ready to go about the work that he had given them. They failed. They didn't drive out all the people. But God has given us work to do. We need to get ready to do it. We need to prepare to do it. 
And so Peter says, being sober-minded. Peter uses uh, that word sober-minded two more times uh, in chapter 4 and verse 7 and chapter 5 and verse 8. And the Greek word is only used three other times in the New Testament. And it carries with it the idea of being self-controlled or living with restraint, having you know, a control over yourself. And thus, I think it carries with it in connection to this idea of girding up your loins, it carries with it the connection that we are to have spiritual alertness. We can't get, we can't fall asleep on our spirituality. We can't fall asleep on our responsibility from God. We need to be alert. We need to be prepared for whatever is coming. Paul gets to this over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6 when he says, So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Our minds need to be clear for the task at hand. Because what's coming is going to try and steer us away from the, from the task at hand. And certainly, that alertness becomes even more important. In chapter 5 and verse 8, of 1 Peter, such a well-known verse, but it gives us the reason why we need to be alert, because it says, likewise, or I'm sorry, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is exactly what will happen if we don't prepare and we don't become spiritually alert. I tell you, if we knew that lions were, you know, wandering out somewhere here in Jacksonville, we'd probably be pretty alert as well. We'd probably be extra uh, cautious about locking our doors and, and checking before we go outside. There's a lion out there. He's trying to devour us. We need to be spiritually alert and prepared because he throws a lot at us. He tries to work through these trials that we go through. And so now we are ready for Peter's four commands or four imperatives. First of all, set your hope fully. Hope is the beginning and the end of this paragraph or this idea. Back in verse 3, we begin with the living hope that we have been born to. Then in verse 13, set your hope fully. And then finally, in verse 21 who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Hope is imperative in all of this. Even Paul gets at this idea over Romans chapter 5 and verse 3 when he says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So you just consider that sentence. Biblical hope is not hope in something that is not sure. We talked about that when we talked about this living hope. It is, it is sure. Biblical hope is based on something that is there. It is firm. It's not going anywhere. It's a sure thing. And that is exactly why we can boast in hoping in it. Humans are foolish when they boast about what they believe may happen in the future. They are foolish when they say, well, I think this is going to happen in the future. 
I, I think maybe down the road this is going to happen for me. But Christians are not foolish when they say, I hope in what's coming, because we are assured of it. Because we know what Jesus has said, we know what he has promised to us, and so our hope is sure. And that's exactly what Peter says. He's assuring us of something that we have not yet received, but we are assured that we are going to receive it. It's coming. And also over in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 24, in this hope you are saved. And Paul makes that statement in the midst of discussion on trials and, uh, and, and troubles that are going on in people's lives. And the physical stress that we have to endure in this life. And so, hope certainly becomes the primary motiva- motivation for the exhortations that Peter gives. Hope is everything. Hope, a a confident hope, gives us motivation to move on. And note the word fully here. We set our hopes fully on the grace that will be revealed, or the grace to be revealed. Again, I think this implies to us that we have absolute assurance that we will obtain the grace promised to us at the revelation of Jesus. Fully means that there is full assurance. Put all your eggs in that basket. Jump in with both feet. Don't hold anything back. Your hope is fully assured. And so, and so hope fully. Hope with everything you have. Well, what does this have to do with overcoming trials, which is what they're going through? Why is this command so important with the trials that they're going to go through? Well, you think about it. Hope is everything to enduring these trials. And and more importantly, a confident hope is everything to enduring the trials that they are going to go through. If our hope is fully on the grace to be revealed. Nothing really, nothing that, that happens in between really matters in comparison to the length of eternity. How short is the time we spend as exiles in comparison to eternity? And so Peter says, hope, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The second command that Peter gives to them is, Be holy in all your conduct. I think this command is based on the three times in Leviticus that God commanded His people, Be holy, for I am holy. This is a responsibility that we have, and in context, it would be impossible for God to dwell with us and be and us be in His presence without holiness. And I'll tell you, this is disregarded so much. People love to think, if God is a nice God and loves me so much, 
He isn't going to condemn me if I live this way or that way, if I don't obey Him, you know, entirely. Here's what is missing in that kind of mindset. You and I were condemned a long time ago. And our only hope for God, our only hope for God to save us is for, for Him to accept us into His presence. That's the only way that we escape what we are condemned to is for Him to accept us into His presence. Well, how does that happen? Because He is holy. In fact, that's the, the one characteristic of God that's repeated over and over again. Holy, holy, holy. So how does that happen? If you attempt to come into the presence of God in an unholy condition, you're toast. Because that is who God is. But it is through Jesus that we can become holy. It is through what Jesus did on the cross, it's through His resurrection and through our obedience to Him that we become holy so that now we can come into His presence. We can share in the salvation that He offers to us. So be holy in all of your conduct. The holiness of God should be the motivation for our holy behavior. If I know God is holy and I want to be in His presence, what does that mean? I need to work on being a holy person. We need to work on being holy people. We need to work on being a holy congregation set apart for God. That's what being in exile is all about. You are set apart from the rest of the world. Holiness is a lifestyle. We must live holy lives. And who defines holiness? It's God. God is the one who defines holiness. And so, it is His Word that guides us into holiness. It's His Word that tells us how we can become holy. We need holiness in all aspects of our lives. We need holiness in our homes. We need holiness in our marriages. We need holiness in our approach to God in worship. In contrast to that, worship that doesn't approach God in holiness is evidenced by worship that fits the desire of the worshiper. It fits what I want and what I desire. I'll tell you, when we see God striking dead two of his four priests in Leviticus chapter, one, in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, and then making a strict warning about bring that which is about bringing that which is common before him in worship we have to realize the stark reality that churches that follow their own desires people that follow their own desires in worship are, are idolatrous we are to be holy people people who love to go or People love to go into all sorts of rationalizations as to why we should not be you know, limited in, in whatever we might do, whether it's singing or praying or studying or giving or taking the Lord's Supper. But I think they're missing the primary argument that Scripture makes. God is holy. God is holy. And anything beyond these needs, beyond these needs authority from God if it is to be considered holy. It comes from Him. And so we are to be holy. How can we hope to withstand the trials that come? 
we don't make living holy lives a priority. That's the second command. The third command, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, if you're wondering what the word fear means, allow me to give you a detailed explanation. It means fear. There is no other way to translate it. It means fear. Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 5, are startling to this present generation. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We've got to have a proper respect for God. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us, that God doesn't desire our salvation. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want to help us. But we do need to understand that God is a holy God. And when we are not holy, fear's got to take over. What happens to those who aren't holy? So conduct yourselves with fear. I love that passage there in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We need to be looking after ourselves. We need to look at how we're living because our responsibility to be is to be holy as our God is holy. So conduct yourselves with fear. And then fourthly, Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. There's so much that could be said here. I just want to notice a couple of quick, obvious points in this context. What happens when trials, pressure, in, increase pressure on our lives, and especially within uh, the relationships of the church? Indeed, during trials, people can make different choices about how they're going to deal with those trials within their own personal circumstances. But there is no time that could be more important for us to be loving one another fervently than when someone's going through a trial. And further, when trials are severe. When is there a more important time for us to need our spiritual family to be a haven for us? We don't all go through trials necessarily at the same exact time. But certainly we should all feel for the one going through the trial at the same exact time. Loving one another fervently. This should be a place in our life among our brethren, where we can feel absolutely secure, absolutely confident in the love, because everything else may be going wrong in our lives. Everything else may be going so horribly wrong, but here we should be able to come and find a haven of rest and of love. 
And finally, loving one another must come from a pure heart. See what I think that means is that none of this can be fake. Can't be fake. Our love to one another can't be surface level. It can't be, you know, I, I put on a good face to you because I got to see you every Sunday or every Wednesday. We got to be invested in one another's lives. Our love has to be so deep that we know when one another is going through something. That we know when there is a problem going on. And that implies to us then that we have a choice to make in our minds. Whether we are going to love someone for real or not. It shouldn't matter. And it doesn't matter. If someone has been a bit irritating to you or you disagree or you have disagreed on something in the past, whatever, love one another from a pure heart. Love should go past, you know, the petty irritations that we may find from one another from being in close proximity. Love looks past that. This is such an important command that Peter makes. Without this love, it is so difficult to go through any trial that you might go through. I tell you, there are two instances in my life where I have, I have seen this so vividly. The first uh, was when my dad died, and I had to uh, take off work and go for the funeral, and uh, we were gone for for a while from that. And when we got back to our church family, they were they were there and they were so supportive. And you know, me and Olivia were working hourly jobs. They tried to help us however they could in all of that. And the second time was back when I lost my job. And there were people all around us who just wanted to help. They wanted to show their love. That is so important. Because it would have been so easy in those moments to begin to get despondent, to give up, begin to blame God for everything that was happening. But because I saw the sincere love of the brethren from pure heart, it helped me stand firm. And it can do that for us as well. And so these four commands are for us as well. Set your hope fully. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That you're hopefully on your salvation. It is confident. You should have confidence in it. You should, you should put all your eggs in that basket. Be holy in your conduct. Because God is holy. Conduct yourselves with fear because God is holy. Understand that's who He is. And finally, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. These commands were important for these exiles because they were about to go through serious trials, and they already were. But it's important for us as well because we may not face some of the same trials that they were facing. We don't face some of the same persecutions that they were facing. But it very well may come in the future. We don't know. There is no better time for us to begin preparing our minds for action. We need to begin now. If we haven't been, we've got to start now. 
And I think that's a message for any in the audience this morning who haven't made the decision to become a child of God. You will not get through this life unscathed. The devil is out there. Trials happen whether you belong to Christ or not. Why don't you prepare yourself for that? It's important that you do that. There is no more important, I say this every week, there is no more important decision you can make in your life than become a child of God so that you can now become confident in the grace of God and the salvation that God gives so that when those inevitable trials do come, you can be a holy individual living with fear, loving your brethren and being loved by your brethren so that you can then stand firm when those trials come Enduring until the end, so that when the day of Jesus comes, you are raised with him into glory, into a life everlasting. Make that decision this morning. If you recognize your need for Jesus, if you are a child of God and you've been struggling with this in your life, you haven't been been, uh, preparing yourself, you've just kind of been sitting back, waiting for the wave to hit you. We want to help you prepare yourself. We don't want to see you get lost along the way when those trials finally do If you have any need this morning, we ask that you come forward as we stand and as we sing together.